This is The Lies People Tell, the podcast where self-help meets true crime. I am your host, Frank Runnels. Welcome. I'm so glad to have you listening to me today, and we're going to have a lot of fun. This is going to be a different type of podcast where we're going to talk about truth, lies, deception, and I'm going to teach you how to always know when you're being deceived, when someone's lying to you, and how do you combat that? How do you overcome that? How do you address that? Now, as many of you will know, if you've listened to me on my previous podcast, The Rugged Individuals, that I'm a retired FBI agent. I spent uh, 24 years with the FBI as a uh, FBI agent and a support person, and uh, I was lied to pretty much every single day during my 24 years with the FBI. I was lied to by my targets or subjects of my investigation. I was lied to by witnesses. I was lied to by victims. I was lied to by my FBI management on occasion. I was lied to by Department of Justice officials, attorneys, defense, and prosecution. I've been lied to so many times, you can't even count the number. And uh, that's okay. That's part of the, the, the business, and I accept that. And I want to share with you what I've learned after 20, over two decades of being lied to and how I've learned how to detect deception and to understand when I'm being lied to, when someone is conning me, and how do I approach that with reasonable, good questions for amplification to make them explain themselves. Because here's the thing. We, when we are confronted with deception, we many times know we're being deceived. We many times know that the person that is uh, trying to pull one over on us is not being straight with us, but we really don't know why that is. We really can't put our finger on, well, I know he's not being truthful because of this, or I don't trust him because of this. It's mostly we have a feeling about someone, and we've all met those guys where it's sort of like, eh, there's something about that guy, or there's something about that person I just don't like or I don't trust. You know what that is? That's the little part of your brain, the amygdala, which is telling you dangers ahead. The amygdala is also sometimes referred to as the reptile part of your brain. It's the oldest part of your brain. It's the, the very deep center where it signals to you when something's not right, something's amiss, some sort of danger is ahead or there's something not quite going on. And I'm a firm believer and a big proponent of you listen to that little voice in the back of your head, that, that part of your brain is saying, hmm, something's not right here. Because you know why, why I listen to that is because it's almost always right. We may not see the signals. We may not understand what we're seeing is the danger. But there's something down deep inside that survivalist part of us that's telling us, listen, be aware something's not right. The, you know, ancient caveman over millennia, they use their reptile part of the brain far more often than we do today because 
they were in danger. They were on the Serengeti plane, if you will, hunting and gathering. And they had to always be aware of the danger surrounding them, whether it be a, a brontosaurus or a saber-toothed tiger. They had to be listening, smelling, hearing, seeing. They're using their senses. And they're on high alert. Their head, as we say in the military, was on a swivel. Even as you know, late as a couple of hundred years ago in the United States and America on the frontier, people were very aware of their surroundings. Not so much today. We're super distracted with our, our uh, technology, our smartphones and computers, and just our ability to be distracted by outside forces. We're always thinking ahead. We're running a mile a minute. We're going crazy with the amount of time that we spend not paying attention to our surroundings and what people say. So when we don't listen to what people say, we miss many times the part of the deception that they're trying to pull. We know somewhere in our mind something's not right, but we just don't know why. That's where I come in. I want to teach you over the course of this podcast how to always know when someone's deceiving you, how you'll always know when someone's lying to you. Let me, let me tell you a little story about how I became so passionate about detection of deception and, uh, being a good interviewer and getting to the bottom of things. When I first became an FBI agent, I was assigned to the Buffalo, New York office. And at that time in the mid nineties, for whatever reason, Buffalo seemed to be a hotbed for telemarketing companies, defrauding old people and uh, running these, these boiler rooms where they're calling people up, say you won this money. All you need to do is send me this, the taxes to cover your payment uh, before I can release the check to you or a wide variety of different scams. And a lot of people, you know, because greed is what it is and that's what they play off of. They said, well, if I send you $10,000, but I get a hundred thousand, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Of course there was no hundred thousand and they'd lose the 10,000. Well, I was assigned to a case while I was on the telemarketing task force and that particular company, their scam was they would go to victims of previous telemarketing scams and tell them, listen, we can recover the money you sent. All we need you to do is give us a percentage of what we recover. And we can tell you definitively, we can give you, we can recover X amount of money, say $10,000. We only need you to give us $3,000 to get your 10,000. So it's suddenly it's like, well, okay, I can get uh, $7, $7,000 back. That's better than nothing. So they sent them to 3,000. Of course, there was no money to be recovered. Watch again, another scam. So my job was to, I had identified the boiler room and the players, but I had to be able to specifically say who called which victim and made these promises, these bogus claims over the phone before we can charge it because we had to charge them with uh, wire fraud, using the phone for scam mail fraud and th those type of things. But you have to be able to connect subject with victim. So my job 
I had to call victims. And I called hundreds of victims, elderly people, World War II vets, little old ladies living on their own, barely making it on Social Security. And I had to get them to tell me what had happened. Well, the problem is they many times had not even told their family about the first scam, not alone the second scam. So getting them to talk was incredibly difficult. They were embarrassed. They didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want anyone to know. They didn't want their name out there. And they just felt uh, very foolish, embarrassed, and very reluctant. And I learned that talking to them, I could always see this pattern of behavior where they used a lot of uh, equivocative languages and they would like, I don't remember. And you say, well, okay, they're 80 years old, but then you got to do a cognitive interview to try to jog their memory. And you learn different little things that kept popping up these deceptive language techniques that they would all use inherently because people lie or deceive the same way everywhere in the world. You're deceptive, whether you're speaking Urdu, Japanese, or English, the same techniques are used worldwide. It's not a language specific thing. It is, it's a, uh, specific to how we use language. Okay. So I learned through that process, a, how to be a good interviewer and get people to open up to me that were very reluctant and B how detrimental and uh, painful being deceived can be because these people lost a lot of money and that money was not coming back and they could ill afford to lose that type of money. It really pissed me off and I never, ever forgot that. And that was, oh, geez, 25 years ago or more. And I still remember it like today because there's nothing sears your soul as much as when an 80 year old lady is crying over the phone about how she lost her money. And she can't hardly afford to feed herself yet. She doesn't want anyone to know that she was so foolish in that, that sweet young man that talked to me on the phone would do such a thing. You know, that sweet young man and you, and I eventually arrested that a lot of those sweet young men, they weren't that sweet, but they just sounded that way. So that's why I'm passionate about this because I know throughout my career, lots and lots of victims, almost all victims are deceived or fooled or duped or lied to by someone that have ill intent. People are deceptive though, many times for ill intent, but there are times as the victims in this telemarketing case, they're deceptive because they're embarrassed or they want to protect themselves or they want to protect a friend. So we're going to learn the difference between that and understand that just because someone's deceptive in your life does not necessarily mean that they're bad people or they have ill intent. There's a variety of reasons why people are deceptive. Now I want to talk a little bit about what is the difference between a lie and being deceptive? See, 
a lie is where you fabricate something, you make up a story out of whole cloth for the purpose of deceiving, to give a false belief or impression. That's a lie by commission. You have committed a lie. You have committed to telling a fabrication. Lies by omission is where you try to deceive one, but you someone, but you use deceptive language like leaving out information or giving a lot of extraneous information that doesn't answer the question or using a lot of equivocation so you really can't be pinned down on your answer or you're using uh, techniques of saying you started something but not explaining did you finish it, but you give the impression you started to do something. Those are all little techniques or ways of deceiving people using language. And I'm going to teach you how to recognize that because each episode, I'm going to try to tackle a different aspect of deceptive language so you can have a more clear idea of when someone's lying to you, when they're being deceptive, and then how are you going to handle that? So my, my goal here with this podcast is to help people protect themselves, their family, and their money by not being taken in by some uh, slick talker that doesn't have their best interest at heart to make you a better communicator. Because if you can know what deception is and deceptive language sounds like, you can be a better communicator because you're listening better and you hopefully will learn not to use deceptive language yourself when you're interacting with people. You want to be truthful and authentic because that's what really does win the race in the long run. And I want you to be able to better understand people. People do good things. Some people do bad things. But we need to be able to recognize both. And we can't have the default of everybody's truthful, everybody's a liar. It's all different shades of gray. Yes, there are some people that are complete liars and not to be believed. And we will go into those. Uh, But there are some people that are not always truthful, even though they seem like they are. They hedge too. They use deceptive language. Once again, maybe for a good reason in their mind, maybe not. Who knows? But we know that people do use deceptive language. Okay. So... When we talk about lying, I want you to understand this. Fabricating a lie is hard to do, and it's extremely stressful. And that's why people use deceptive language. They lie by omission far, far more than they do by commission. Because if you lie by commission, if you make up a lie, if you fabricate something, now it's on you to make the story believable, give enough detail that it sounds credible, but not so much detail that you can't keep it straight and remember it. And you have to be convincing. You are not just conveying information. You're trying to be convincing to them. So you have to keep all of these things going at the same time, on top of the fact that you know you're lying and you have the possibility of getting caught. Whereas by the lie by 
omission, deceptive languages, you're just skipping over parts of the story that doesn't look good. The parts of the story you don't want them to know about. You rely on a lot of, well, I really don't recall, I can't remember, or, well, maybe this happened, I'm not sure, possibly, or you're giving them a ton of different information, but they're not, you're not talking or addressing the topic that you're supposed to be uh, addressing when they asked you the question. You're talking about everything but that in the hopes that they'll get lost in that maze of words that you're weaving while at the same time saying, listen, I'm being completely cooperative. Look at all the information I've given you. The problem is, is you're not giving them any pertinent details. You're giving them a lot of generalities that is really meaningless and not pertinent. So that's why lying is hard to do. Let me give you a couple of examples of why I say lying is hard to do because there have been very well-known cases of people that, you know, was caught dead to rights. Everybody knew what they did. And yet they still had a hard time admitting that they did something. As most people remember, uh, the Oklahoma city bombing, uh, back in the nineties, man named Timothy McVeigh, actually from the Buffalo, New York area was the uh, perpetrator of this crime. And he was caught and, and he, you know, he had had a truckload, a, uh, delivery truckload of, uh, fertilizer and diesel fuel and blew up the Murray federal building in Oklahoma city, killed hundreds of people, lots of property damages, little kids killed. It was just a horrendously, you know, horrible, horrible thing. He was caught and, uh, while waiting trial, he was interviewed by Newsweek magazine in July of 1995 and Newsweek asked him this, the question that everyone wants to know, did you do it? McVeigh answers. The only way we can really answer that is that we are going to plead not guilty. James McVeigh's attorney follows with, and we're going to go to trial. Newsweek reporter then asked, but you've got the chance here right now to say, hell no. McVeigh answers, we can't do that. Now, why couldn't he do that? Why couldn't he lie and say, yeah, I didn't do it? Because it's hard. Because he knows he did it. Because uh, maybe he was proud of what he did and he didn't want to turn his back on it. I don't know. But I know this. He didn't lie. He couldn't, couldn't tell that lie. What he did do was not answer the question and say, well, you know, we're going to plead not guilty. That wasn't really the question asked. So he's given kind of an extraneous information answer, but he is having a hard time lying. Well, I've thought a lot about this and this is a theory I have. And, you know, everyone has theories, and but this is as good as any. We have a hard time lying because we're socialized as people, even the worst of us, from the time we're children, not to lie. Bad people lie. People that lie do bad things, and bad things happen to people who get caught lying. We, 
even the worst parents will admonish their kids not to lie to me, not to lie. Even the worst parents don't sit down and say, Hey, Johnny, Sally, let me tell you how to fabricate a lie. Let me teach you how to be a good liar. I'm sure there have been occasions throughout history, but we're talking about the norm, not the, the, uh, abnormal. We're not talking about the anomaly. We're talking about what's normal and normal is we teach our kids that bad people lie. Don't lie to me. That's a bad thing to do. And that is so ingrained in us throughout our childhood that we're always admonished. Tell the truth. Don't you lie to me. Don't, don't be dishonest, that dishonesty is bad, that we really have a tough time doing that. Now, I mean, obviously there are some people out there that are just sociopaths or psychopaths that have no problem doing it, but I'm talking about the average person. Okay. So that's why people have a hard time lying. Now I'm going to play you a, a clip of someone a little more contemporary that you will all probably remember, Charlie Sheen. And as you recall, he had a long-running TV series called Two and a Half Men. Extremely popular, number one comedy for a long time on CBS. And he made a ton of money. He was, at the time of this interview, I think he was the highest-paid actor on TV. I think he was pulling in like $1.8 million per episode times 24 to 26 episodes a year. That's a lot of money. He was doing very well, but he went off the deep end because he's got a lot of uh, issues and uh, addiction issues and uh, different, different personality problems. So he sort of went off the deep end and uh, this interview I'm going to talk to you about or, or play you is an interview he did with Piers Morgan when Piers Morgan had a uh, show on CNN. And this is sort of like, uh, supposed to be his rehabilitative type of tour to, to rehabilitate, rehabilitate his image in, uh, in the public eye. Uh, I'll let you draw your own conclusions after you listen to the tape, if he did himself any good, but Piers asked him about a, uh, an assault, a physical, uh, assault that was uh, claimed that he had committed against a woman. Listen to how he answers the question and see if he can keep up with the lie. A special live guest, Charlie Sheen. Charlie, there have been reports in the papers in the last two or three years hinting at violence by you towards, one was towards your wife and one was towards a porn star in a hotel. Right. Were they true? Did the drugs make you violent? Do you regret what happened on those two no, incidents? No, those are two instances where the scoreboard doesn't lie. And that, you know, the, the Aspen thing was, was thrown out. The judge was like, get this guy out of my county. It brings too much press with him. And then uh, the police report in New York just didn't reflect anything. And those are the guys that are going to report the facts. Or their jobs are on the line. So I just offer people those, you know. Have you ever hit a woman? Uh, I have not. No, no. Women are not to be hit. They're, be, they're to be hugged and caressed, you know. Few people that are very close to you have expressed real concern. I'm sorry, there was an incident years ago and everybody thought I hit her. I was trying to uh, contain her and I had her arms and we both went to the ground and she hit her. Who was that? Her initials are BA, I'll give you, I'll give you that much. 
Um, I don't want to make the whole thing about her, you know. Okay. Uh, and, and, I, and I felt terrible. I delivered her to a plastic surgeon and tried to, like, you know, and everybody said, you hit her. And I'm like, no, I, she hit her thing and whatever, it's over. But uh, well, and do you, do you I, I, I felt bad about that one, yeah. You regret that? Yeah, she was attacking me, though, um, with, a, with a, like, a small fork. Like a cocktail fork, and I think she had it with her. That's the weird part. What was she doing with, it? like, a shrimp fork in her purse? But is there ever any? She defense? stole it clearly. But is there any? From a buffet. Sorry. Oh no! But is there any ever defense? Any defense? Well, you can't. Whatever story you, you you come up with sounds like you've you've made it up. So, and that's the truth, and that's what happened. But you I, you yeah. regret that incident? Oh God, yeah, yeah. But I never really told the story about that because everybody was uh, under a gag order or something. Um, but there were heinous things that led up to that that I was trying to fend off. Whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll own it. And so that's, I just remember that when you asked. That's the only time that it was uh, presumed that I'd done so. Okay, so he says, no, I've never hit a woman. And yet, immediately, he launches into a story of basically how he did assault a woman. Now, he used a lot of extraneous information to justify why he was in a tussle with this woman and he's trying to be cute and she had a shrimp fork or a cocktail fork and she stole it from a buffet. All of that is misdirection. All of that is extraneous information. It's used to justify that he actually did physically assault this woman. And she did obviously get hurt because he said, Oh, I paid for her plastic surgeon surgery and such as that. Well, obviously there was enough damage that it required surgery. So there was an incident, but he couldn't stick with the lie. He said, no, I didn't there to be hugged and caressed. And then he immediately launched in. Well, there was this one incident. Now we don't know why he felt the necessity to give up the lie and say, yes, I did. But he, for some reason, did. Now, the only way we can get to that is the second part of what I want you to learn is how do you find out the motivations behind that? Now, Pierce, you know, asked a few questions, but I would, if I was interviewing him, I would ask him a lot of in-depth questions about the assault. Well, what led up to it? How did it occur? Could you tell me or show me or explain to me how did you grab her? How did she hurt her face? How did she get injured? What was the extent of the injuries? Can you show me the way that these things played out? How did it end? I would want all of this information because I want him to give me what as little or as much detail as he can. Because the less detail he gives me, the more deceptive I believe the answer is. The more dis- detail that involves one of the five senses he gives, then that gives me a little more hope that maybe he's being truthful because the more detail you give, the chances are the more likely the story is true. Because if we're making up a story, we don't want so much detail that we can't keep it straight because we're going to have to tell this story over and over and over again. But you don't have to remember the truth. The truth you already know. You know what occurred if it's the truth. You can explain it time and time and time again because you experienced it. You lived it. It's a flashbulb, you know, like memory for you. And there's a lot of science behind how we remember traumatic events like getting into a fight with a woman to the point you injured her to have to receive uh, facial reconstructive surgery, whatever. That's pretty traumatic. That's a big deal. You probably would remember that if it happened the way 
you said it did, unless you wanted to be deceptive. So that's the other part of it is I want to teach how do you really get down to the truth. Now, I'm going to use criminal statements during this podcast that I've gathered over the years, consulting on cases and teaching deceptive language analysis to law enforcement, not only in the United States, but around the world. And that is the true crime part of this podcast. As I said at the top, this is where self-help meets true crime. The true crime aspect of it is I'll be using statements, some well-known like the George Zimmerman statement or Casey Anthony or Oscar Pretorius, such as that, but I'll also be using some unknown statements involving sexual assaults, robberies, homicides, uh, you have it, arson cases, uh, shaken baby syndrome, those type of things to illustrate the points I'm trying to make to teach you when to be able to detect deception. And I use those statements because they're interesting, they're good examples, and it gives you a little bit of behind-the-scenes look at crimes and how we approach these type of situations and how we analyze what people say to detect if they're being truthful or dishonest. So that's the true crime part of it. One other thing I want to make sure you understand is that what I'm teaching is not only applicable to law enforcement. This is applicable to any facet of your life. Whether you're an HR manager doing hiring or employee screening, a boss counseling an employee, an employee talking to a boss, whether you're a counselor, a mentor, or a coach, if you're someone that just talks to people for a living, if you interview people, you counsel people, this is applicable to you. But it's also applicable to you in your everyday life because the reality is, is we interview people all the time. When you sit down with your kids at dinner at night, and hopefully you do, and you ask them how was their day, start quizzing them about school and homework and assignments. That's the interview. You are trying to get information because the interview is just a conversation with direction. You know what you're trying to get from them and you're interviewing them. Anytime you interview people, that's their opportunity to be truthful or deceptive. And maybe your kid's going to be deceptive. Maybe he hasn't done this assignment. Maybe he didn't you know, go to basketball practice after school, he went and hung out with his buddies, you know, doing something else. We want to be able to pick up on that and be able to expand on that to find out what's happening. Someone's coming to do work on your house or giving you an estimate, some from work on your car or your deck or whatever. And you start asking them some questions as they start giving you answers that give you a little bit of an ill feeling. I want you to be able to fall back on what I teach you to delve into that and ask some hard questions and put them on the spot to answer your questions. They have to give up the information. You don't answer the question for them. You make them answer the question or just your personal interactions with family and friends, you know, cause, uh, reality is, is sometimes uh, family and friends aren't always uh, straight up with you for whatever reason. Maybe they're trying to spare your feelings or they're embarrassed or they just don't want you to know something. This gives you the opportunity to be able to decipher that. Now, I'm not saying approach everything in life as I, everyone's being deceptive. Understand 
Not everyone's being deceptive. What I'm saying is, is if you get that ill feeling, I want you to step back and say, let me look at what they're saying. Let me listen to this again, because maybe something's not right. Okay. So this is the direction we're going to take the podcast. And I hope that this is going to be worthwhile and helpful to you because we're living in a, uh, a time where we're fraught with danger. There's a lot of people out there on the internet and, uh, the technical world that's very sophisticated and they spend all their time figuring up scams to take people's money or freedom. Because if, if you money is freedom in this world, and if you don't have money, you don't have freedom. And I want to try to arm people that listen to this podcast so they can go out there and take care of themselves, live the best, happiest life they possibly can, and be the best communicator they can. Because the better communicator you are in life, the more successful you're going to be in life. So with that being said, I want to thank you for listening. Please, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please subscribe to the podcast. That'd be great. If you could give me a rating, a five-star rating would be great. If you like what you hear, just scroll down to the bottom of the Apple iPod, uh, Apple uh, podcast uh, app, and that's where you can put the, the ratings and uh, reviews. And share this. I'll post this episode on uh, Facebook, but uh, share it with people that might be interested in this subject because this is something that everyone can learn from. I think you're going to find it interesting. And I, I hope my endeavor, my hope is, is to try to, when I walk away from this life, to feel like I've done as much as I can to help as many people as I can with the knowledge God's blessed me with accumulating over my years. So with that being said, I will talk to you next week. Good luck, and uh, we'll see you soon.